Welcome to the AWB Podcast, the official podcast of the Association of Washington Business, the catalytic leader and unifying voice for economic prosperity throughout Washington State. In today's episode, Vice President of Government Affairs Gary Chandler sits down with his government affairs staff to talk about the key issues in the 2020 legislative session. Good morning. Uh, thank you very much for joining us this morning on this bright and some places uh, sunny or uh, snowy day. Hope those of you that have snow are getting around okay. Down here in Olympia, we got nada. But maybe it's coming later on. So let the snow happen. Uh, the passes are open again right now. But if you need to get to one side or the other, you better hurry up. Uh, as we've seen over the weekend, they've been open and closed. And so last I saw since Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, they've got close to 42 or 43 inches of snow, uh, which is good for uh, that snowpack. So uh, here this morning, we want to talk about pre-session. Uh, today starts uh, the session of a 60-day only session. Uh, everything I hear, they want to hold it to 60 days, and let's hope sure, or let's make sure they try to do that. And it will end on March the 12th is when the 60-day is over. This morning, as I have uh, my staff go through each one of their issue areas, if uh, one of you have questions along the way, uh, please just go ahead and type it in and we will get the question here and we will try to answer it for you. If we don't have the answer, then we will make sure we get back with you. As I said, this is a short 60-day session. Uh, as they kick off uh, the session today, one of the first orders of business they have to do is elect a new Speaker of the House. If you remember, uh, last year after session was over, Speaker Chop, after serving about 20 years, uh, stepped down from being Speaker. Uh, Representative Lori Jenkins was uh, eventually appointed as the Speaker-elect, and so she will get that formal designation today. Actually, Representative John Lovick has been covering since Speaker Chop stepped down until Lori is um, sworn in. He has been the speaker um, since that period of time. Uh, Lori comes from the 21st or 27th district, which is around uh, Tacoma uh, area. She was first elected, her first uh, legislative session was in 2011. Uh, she will be the first woman speaker that the state of Washington has had. Uh, coming along with Lori, remembering that Lori, since the first year that she was introduced into the legislature, Lori has always been very strong on a capital gains tax. And so she's talked about that a lot, but she's also said it may not be the timing for that. So we will see as that uh, goes through. We also will have some new legislators, um, new from uh, last year, up in the 10th in the Senate, uh, Senator Bailey uh, resigned from the Senate. And you have Ron Muzal, I believe his last name is, uh, has been appointed to that position. So there'll be one new Republican senator uh, in the Senate. And then in the House, um, Jeff Morris, Representative Jeff Morris, <clears throat> stepped down to take a uh, job in the private sector. And we have Representative Alex Ramal uh, that will be taking that position. And then just here about a week or two ago, Representative Reeves, uh, she also stepped down. She was in the 30th district. She stepped down to run full-time for a congressional position, and that position has not been filled yet. Probably we'll see that within the next week. So a lot of things are going to start transpiring in um, the next few uh, days. So some of the issues that are coming up that each of the staff will be talking about, I think it's going to be a very packed session with a lot of issues. I think one of the staff mentioned this morning they've already got seven hearings this week. So hearing-wise have been starting off very rapidly. I think we will see a very compact with a number of issues uh, that will be spoke of and talked about quite a bit, but we hope a lot of them will still be uh, bottled up. But a lot of them that will be at the top of it, and Tommy Gantz, a new staff person coming on, will talk about that, but certainly capital gains. Uh, although uh, this session coming in, they will have close to a billion new dollars to be working with. They are still looking for more uh, revenue from uh, the business community out there. 
Most likely when Bob talks, we'll see a lot of the employment law stuff that we saw last year. Uh, a lot of that stuff comes out of Seattle. The capital gains is coming because of Seattle, trying to pass an income tax. Then it comes to the legislature to try, try to pass it statewide. Restrictive scheduling started in Seattle. Now they're trying to push it statewide. So we're seeing a lot of things that come out of Seattle trying to push it out to the state as a whole. One of the things that we will be reminding legislators is the compounding effect that it is especially having on small businesses in the state. One of the surprises that uh, a lot of small businesses woke up January 1st for is remembering that in January 1st minimum wage took a dollar and a half leap and that will have a dramatic impact on an awful lot of small mom and pop uh, businesses out there that we will have to watch and see what happens. At the same time, paid family leave takes effect. They've been paying the tax on it, but it now actually will go into effect where employees can start utilizing it. We're going to see a lot around transportation. What happens in 976 that Mike will talk about? How do they fill that budget hole back up with 976? Around the tax issue and around transportation is a cap and trade bill that will raise taxes someplace or a low carbon fuel standard that will raise taxes, or a price on carbon that will raise taxes. So a lot of issues out there around the tax world and transportation as well as in the general fund budget. A lot of talk on natural gas. Should we uh, do away with natural gas? You're seeing that in Bellingham, you're seeing it in Seattle. Natural gas is very important to our state for reliability of the grid as well as our manufacturers in the use of natural gas. So a lot of these things are coming to a head and will be talked about this year. The governor threw in that the state ought to be more involved in homelessness that he wants to raise uh, revenue for or take it out of the rainy day fund. If he can't get it out of the rainy day fund, where will that be funded? So a lot of new issues that are going to be out there uh, through this session. So I'm going to turn it over to our newest uh, uh, staff here at AWB taking over our Tax and Fiscal Policy Committee. I'm excited about, about having Tommy Gantz on board with us. She just started uh, the first, well, the end of December and is coming on board and is getting up to speed right away. So I'm going to let her talk a little bit about uh, the tax and fiscal issues that are going to happen this session. Remember, if you have questions, please type those in and we'll try to answer them. So Tommy, welcome on board. First time here at a pre-session like this, first time on the camera, so take well, it away. Good morning, Gary, thank you. Yeah. Um, first of all, I would like to say thank you to all of, um, to the very warm welcome that I've received here at a AWB from both my colleagues and our members, um, as well as uh, some of the other lobbyists in the area. I've received an incredibly warm welcome and I'm very grateful for that. Um, I think the crux of my issue area this year is is going to be a continuance from the first half of the biennium the capital gains tax um, you know i was watching the associated press interview with some of our representatives and due to this short session of this biennium you know there's there seems to be that there will be a diminished push for that capital gains tax what that tells me is that next year is going to be a much bigger battle for us in that area um, some of the challenges with the capital gains tax, for those of you that aren't familiar, is that our state's constitution prohibits a capital gains tax, and under the tax code, uh, capital gains is an income tax. So there are a lot of challenges there. Um, I think the biggest thing is that while I'm very new to this industry, this area of business, uh, it hasn't taken me very long to continually hear the same thing over and over, and that's that. Um, the state, the citizens, and the small and large businesses of Washington State feel like they have been taxed enough. Um, we have more than enough revenue to sustain the, the programs that we currently have. Um, we have tax collections of $51.7 billion, which is nearly double the collections of the 2009 to 2011 timeframe. Um, currently, the spending of the 2019-21 budget is $52.8 billion. This is up 18.4% um, than last year's budget. That's, that's a pretty substantial increase. 
Last year's budget was $44.7 billion. Um, I think we're going to see some potential uh, review of the legislation from the first half of the biennium that passed 2158. I think it was a very confusing um, piece of legislation, and there's been a lot of frustration around that. So, uh, you know, I think we'll, we'll see less of a push and some review of, of existing taxes. But, but the citizens and the, and the businesses of the state have made it clear no, no new taxes in this area. They're taxed enough, and we have enough budget to sustain what we need to sustain. Uh, the basis for the push for capital gains is K-1 through 12 um, support. And while we definitely support the policies, we feel like there's enough money there to do what they need to do. Currently, 53% of our state's budget goes towards uh, those programs, and 81% of that is geared towards K-1 through 12. So um, definitely feel the funding is there. So Tommy, uh, you and I had a chance to go out and meet with Department of Revenue. Mm -hmm. A lot of frustration even at the Department of Revenue around 2158. Uh, being an unfair tax, it's not hitting every business. It's hitting certain targeted businesses. I believe it was 51 NATE codes that the legislature picked and said these 20 or 53 NATE codes ought to be taxed differently at this level. So even the Department of Revenue has shared the same as what we're hearing from a lot of members. It's unfair, it's unmanageable. Department of Revenue is having a hard time putting it into place. We're seeing a lot of unfairness in the healthcare side. So a sole practitioner doctor will get a 20% uh, surcharge on theirs, but nobody else in the healthcare industry. So certainly, uh, I agree with you, Tommy, that there will be some looking at at least 2158. How do they uh, do that differently? We would prefer they just take 2158 and uh, do away with it. But we'll see what the legislature has to say. Yeah, um, I think uh, another another thing is that it's just not applied fairly. It's uh, it's very confusing, even uh, tax policy um, advocates and uh, per, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Very uh, subject matter experts in that area are, are it, they find it very confusing. So if, if tax policy experts are finding it confusing, how is the Department of Revenue supposed to uh, enforce that piece of legislation? You know, we have a lot of, I, I've read a lot of reports that suggest businesses are fleeing other states with really oppressive tax systems to come and do business in our state, help grow our local economy, and what a way to welcome them to say, we're going to enforce the same types of legislation um, that you were trying to leave and come to our state and help our state grow and be healthy and bountiful. So um, it'll be interesting to see how this all plays out. Okay. Well, we're excited about having you. Thank excited you so as you move forward in this. So thank you very much. I appreciate everything. Okay. Thank you. Next time I'm going to have up is uh, Bob Battles. Um, certainly in Bob's area, employment law, I think Bob is going to have kind of a hiatus this session. Uh, won't have very many tough issues out there, um, but I could be wrong at that. Um, so, Gary, Gary, far from, from me saying that you're wrong, uh, but you're wrong. Uh, this is going to be a, actually a, uh, yet again, I, I, I mean, no surprise to everybody here, it's going to be a, uh, a, a busy year for uh, employment law and labor law issues. <clears throat> that being said, I'm not sure how many of them will get to the finish line in a 60-day session, but this is really teeing up again for uh, 2021, uh, it was what you expect. So uh, as Gary mentioned, uh, started the first year, paid family and medical leave started, as well as the increase in the minimum wage. So everything we're doing today needs to be kind of put on top of that uh, with the compounding issues. Uh, so these programs are, are in place. Another big thing that happened uh, that's not taking effect until July of 2020 uh, is the overtime rules were adjusted by uh, the Department of Labor and Industries, resulting in uh, a final rule that would uh, make $83,000 as the new salary threshold. That is going to, I think, help shape a little bit of what we're going to have discussions here at session this year. Uh, so starting with one of the big issues, uh, independent contractors, the topic is not going away. Whether we see a full-size bill that addresses the entire issue, I don't think we will this session. All indications in our conversations with some of the key players in here 
uh, Senator Kaiser, uh, Representative Richelli, uh, and then also even the Labor Council, those folks, uh, they don't see a bill itself going through, uh, but there, there is going to be some conversations about it. Uh, also remember that California just implemented a new AB5 uh, uh, rule on independent contractors, which deals mainly with the gig economy. But that's becoming the new baseline, I think, that's going to be the discussion. So we're going to be dealing with that. There will be one... Think, Bob, once oh. again, we're going to copy California? Uh, that that, is, a, that is a concern. I, I have to be honest. That's a huge concern for business because I don't think the California model works, uh, even the people down there. And the California model is entering into litigation. So, so uh, we, we, would, we will be at the table, uh, but I can tell you right now, I'm not liking the look of that table right now, and so we need to, we need to have some strong conversations. And that means engagement for our members. Uh, again, I shout out to the, to the cosmetologists last year for what they did. Uh, that kind of engagement is what we're talking about that's going to make a difference. There will be a bill call, uh, that's on freelancers uh, or independent contractors that deals with minimum wage, uh, and we have some concerns with that bill that's going to be moving forward. Uh, the other one I think you mentioned here was restrictive scheduling, uh, sometimes referred to as predictive and secured scheduling. Uh, it, it, is a, uh, it is a topic we have met with uh, the uh, folks uh, pushing that bill, uh, specifically uh, Senator Sodania and also Representative Macri, who have, uh, we have not seen a new draft. We have had concepts shared. We have concerns, and those concerns uh, for the last two years probably haven't been completely addressed on what we were hoping to do when it comes to uh, addressing that. Uh, it doesn't take into account inclement weather as we had today. It doesn't take into account uh, some of the uh, uh, needs of different industries. It just, uh, and if you think, although it, it focuses on hospitality, services, and retail, uh, if you don't think it applies to you, uh, ag has a retail component. And that retail component is, uh, you know, doesn't have two weeks notice to do things. It can happen overnight. So it's going to hit every industry in its way. Uh, I think that uh, the other one I want to kind of just mention here to highlight is, as another that we're dealing with is privacy. Privacy has uh, been a, was a big issue for the last few years. Uh, it uh, had a lot of uh, uh, momentum behind it last year. Senator Carlisle's bill, Representative Hudgens' engagement in that bill as well. Uh, but uh, we are looking at hearings already set for this week uh, on the privacy bill. So I think privacy is still going to be a, a, a key component. Uh, business and it's a, it's a sort of a balancing of the advocates for uh, the privacy protection, but also businesses and how can you implement it. Uh, making and really a concern also about the small businesses and how do you define small businesses? Uh, it can't be defined necessarily just by two, three, four employees because uh, you know, it's one of the big uh, one of the biggest privacy issues you had countrywide was on a company that was only seven employees. So it's it's really a it, it's not an easy topic. Uh, we are dealing with uh, both the European system and California again. Uh, I think we're really uh, more interested in trying to stay with the European. Ultimately, our goal would be to have one national solution. Not likely to happen, but but that's something that we uh, are pushing for. So those are sort of the highlights of what's happening. I expect to see some. Uh, 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 hopefully uh, some uh, legislation on uh, the EAP, the overtime, and then other ones just to, you know, workers' comp, there will be some issues on those things. So let me, Bob, let's take a minute. Uh, you put out a new one-pager that we have on the overtime rule. Yes. If you're interested, you can get that from Bob. I believe it will probably be on our website. You can also pull it down. Uh, but this overtime rule has going to have a pretty a big effect over a period of time on businesses and this is directed at which employee it is my management position it makes it sound like there's 260 270,000 employees out there that don't get paid overtime but this really narrows down to a small sector in the business community can you talk about them and what restrictions even around those positions sure uh, Gary uh, this new overtime rule uh, people that were exempt from overtime rule have always had to meet what we call the duties test. And the rule actually well does a good job of trying to realign what the federal and the state uh, government has on the duties test. So, you know, you do certain types of uh, responsibilities, the management, the supervisory roles, 
uh, the you know the, the the independent type roles you're doing that kind of thing so you would normally be considered because of those duties exempt meaning that you work on a salary uh, basis you are able to have flexibility in your time you're able to uh, kind of dictate your own schedule within reason if you need to take time for, off for a doctor's appointment you just go you don't put in time if you've got a, a kids concert or a, a child that's sick you can address those things what this new salary threshold is doing is it sets sort of this arbitrary number. Uh, the federal government just actually implemented one on January 1st as well at 35000 That if you make less than $35,400 um, on a federal level, and that's what everybody has to be uh, working with right now because it's, uh, that's higher than the state's level right now, then, then you can't get overtime, even if you meet the duties. But the concept behind that is somebody that's making less than that is probably also not doing the duties that are necessary. In this case, when we move it up to $83,000 uh, by 2028, you really have created a situation where the folks that are making that number also probably meet the duties test. And that's what this 260000 is. They meet the duties test. We're just creating an arbitrary number that sets it so high that we can no longer then be exempt, which means you have two options. You uh, pay them overtime, uh, or you uh, uh, increase their salary above 83,000. Uh, that sounds fine, but we're talking, this happens to nonprofits who don't have the ability to increase their budget. This happens to small businesses that don't have really a way to increase and absorb that cost. Uh, it, it takes away job opportunities. It takes away the flexibility of a, of a manager. It takes away the uh, the learning and, and working your way up through the system. So all of those things are affected by this. So eventually this will be tagged at two and a half times minimum wage. It will automatically go up every year. That's correct. So that 83000 in 2026, is it? 2028. 2027 for actually larger companies. Oh, okay. So a year earlier for larger companies. But even at that, then it continues to increase past that $83,000 as minimum wage goes up. So That's if minimum correct. wage goes up 5%, the 83000 will go up 5%. That's correct. And if, if, uh, but if the escalator goes down, it's based on a CPI, you don't lower this. It always goes up. It never goes down. And so this really will have a dramatic effect on a lot of rural areas, a lot of small, mid-sized businesses. Uh, businesses that may have a manager that would be making more money than necessarily the owner of the business. Uh, so it could have a real negative effect on the business. It's going to have a huge impact on the business. I mean, no one, we will have the highest uh, salary threshold in the country with this uh, rule. Uh, and again, this was a rule that's been uh, put on you that uh, really uh, is not based on necessarily what's out there in the market. It's based on an arbitrary rule, a number that's just been set. All right. Good enough. Thank you, Bob. Thank you. Next up, we're going to have Amy to come in and talk about education, uh, workforce training. I'm sure she's going to talk about child care that she's been working an awful lot on here uh, lately. So, Amy. All right. Yes. Good morning. Thank you, Gary. Um, yeah, absolutely. Education and workforce training, and I'll do a little bit of an update on healthcare as well. Uh, the, a lot of our discussions during the interim have been focused on early childhood learning and childcare issues. Uh, we, Washington State, has some of the highest areas for childcare deserts in the country. Uh, so we've been working collaboratively on the Child Care Collaborative Task Force with a lot of our uh, colleagues, stakeholders, partners uh, to look at some solutions for Washington State. We've also been working with our uh, colleagues at the federal level and in other states too to find out where the, there's some best practices and how do we best do this. So one of the things that we anticipate seeing here in this in the 2020 session around early childhood learning and child care is some um, issues addressing the state subsidy, expanding both the amount of uh, subsidy that uh, providers receive as well as the eligibility, so those who are able to access it. Um, some of the, the recommendations that the task force has sent along to the governor and to the legislature include how do we stabilize and support the workforce, the child care industry workforce. Uh, we have a lot of folks who are making that minimum wage, um, but they, it's a career that they enjoy, a career that they would like to continue in, um, but just as we have experienced with our K-12 through system and our post-secondary system, we need to make sure we are adequately paying those folks um, who are taking care of our youngest learners in the state. <clears throat> Excuse me. 
Also looking at uh, facilities and how do we make sure that there are enough facilities and enough slots open um, across the state. In K through 12, uh, really looking at how do we, we fix some of the technical issues still coming off of some major funding that we've, we've contributed to the K through 12 system. Uh, how do we address some of our behavioral health issues in the system, making sure we have enough nurses, mental health counselors, as well as workforce development counselors in our K through 12 system. Um, and then looking at, again, how are we increasing those multiple pathways to graduation, making sure that our kids do have the opportunity to do some career exploration and understand what best will um, treat them in their careers as they head into their post-secondary uh, efforts. And in post-secondary, um, looking at how do we address the increasing of state work study, making sure businesses have the ability to utilize that funding stream to bring in folks who are students so that they do have the ability to do work-based learning opportunities such as internships, uh, externships, uh, apprenticeships, etc. And then also looking at encumbered worker training uh, dollars, one of these things that we've been working on for the past few sessions, particularly as we head into an economic downturn, whether it's um, as slight as it currently is, uh, making sure that those dollars are available there in case we do have some, some changes in uh, supply lines or facilities and needing to retrain some of those workers that are out there. Any questions on our education and workforce before I head on over to healthcare? All right. Um, so our, the 2020 session for healthcare really is probably going to mirror a lot of the efforts that are going on at the federal level. You're hearing a lot about Medicare for all and how do we look at universal healthcare. Uh, AWB is part of a universal healthcare work group looking at how what type of a system is feasible in Washington State um, and how is that funded. Uh, AWB continues to maintain that we support a free market healthcare system. Uh, so our voice at the table is extremely critical to make sure that we are looking at uh, what type of a system, if at all, uh, would be feasible because it's a funding issue uh, when we get down to it. If we have a fully funded healthcare system funded by the government and run by the government, uh, that will mean some very dramatic changes to the healthcare system in Washington State, and particularly in a state where we have a lot of innovation going on in the healthcare sector. Um, this could have some critical impact to us. So we're making sure that the, the business voice is being heard there. Uh, under pharmaceuticals, uh, we're going to continue discussions on opioids. Um, and then also insulin drug pricing. Uh, the insulin drug prices have uh, skyrocketed due to some um, overseas uh, uh, funding or uh, overseas um, issues as far as providing some uh, pieces to the, the production of that. So looking at that, making sure that folks who do need that insulin are do have access to that. Um, as well as around the medical tourism or procuring your uh, pharmaceuticals and or your services in countries other than the United States. There's a few bills out there that are going to be addressing that issue as well. Um, and then finally, really mental health. Uh, again, I mentioned this for our education system. It's critical across the board and it's playing into our housing issues, our education issues, our childcare issues, um, making sure that there are enough mental health services across the state to address some of these issues and getting folks into, uh, back into the workforce if they need that, those uh, supports. Any questions on healthcare? You're getting off scot-free, but I wanna jump back to, to childcare okay. because I think it has turned out to be more of an interesting and one that more businesses are starting to talk about that as the price of that childcare goes up, a lot of their workers are having a hard time finding childcare uh, facilities, especially as you get more into the rural areas. And also if you're working shift work, uh, trying to find a childcare provider at nighttime. But a lot of it seems to come around the increased uh, regulatory requirements that are being put on by the state for the child care worker and inside that facility. Can you talk a little bit about that because as those prices continue to, to go up, especially that vulnerable 
uh, first-time worker out there that we're trying to get into the workforce, help them get into the workforce and start building their way up or really be impacted by the cost of child care continuing to go up? Sure. Thank you for the question, <clears throat> Gary. Um, really, child care for businesses, this is a current workforce issue as well as a future workforce issue. Uh, as Gary mentioned, you are having folks who are leaving the workforce or choosing not to participate in the workforce and or training programs because of the lack of affordable and accessible child care. Uh, under the quality issue, we want to make sure that the, the child care that we do have available, early childhood learning programs, are preparing that next generation of workforce so that they are successful in their K-12 through and post-secondary endeavors. And yes, it is. There are a multitude of facts that play into the cost of child care. Right now, it's about, depending on where you are in the state, about twelve to $18,000 a year uh, for child care for one child. Uh, in some cases, it's more expensive than sending your child to college. <clears throat> so, excuse me. Uh, regulations on the facilities definitely is one factor that plays into that. We have to remember that these folks are, in addition to child care providers, they are small businesses. So all of the issues that Bob talked about, paid family leave, minimum wage increase, et cetera, are impacting them as a small business. And then you look at how is this, in, you know, the additional regulations because they are a child care facility. There are student to teacher ratios, just like you find in some of our K through 12 classrooms. Um, and if you have a, you have a facility where um, when you have infants, it's four, four infants per one care provider. Um, but when you get up into those higher ages, it's uh, few, more students per care provider. But you need that mix of, um, of uh, ages to be able to subsidize one over the other. Those regulations are becoming more and more strict as far as not only the, the number of students that, per care provider, uh, but the square footage in the room based on the number of students that's in there. Um, and we are, we are all very supportive, obviously, of a safe environment for our, our children. But looking at the industry, the regulations that are governing this industry, it would be useful to take a look at where some that may be uh, onerous uh, and not necessarily as useful as others, and then making sure that we are having those, uh, those safety procedures in place that need to be in place. So again, being able to provide what's going to end up happening um, if we continue down the path we're doing, you have a lot of folks who are leaving the industry. Uh, we have centers, we have locations across the state who are losing centers completely. Um, so you won't have providers. So you have folks just trying to piecemeal together childcare for their children, uh, which we all know stability for kids, uh, particularly when they're in those young vulnerable ages is key to their development and making sure that they do have a provider that is consistently there for them, that is a safe environment, is again key to their success in the K through 12 system. Um, and of course, having our, our uh, adults who want to participate in the workforce be able to and not have to stay home just because of a lack of childcare um, or the affordability of it. So interesting, not gonna go away. It's another one of those issues that the compounding effect and sometimes just asking the legislature, pause. Let's see what is in place. Let's see how it works before you continue to add on more. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, I think also in the childcare side, it's more coming from the agency rulemaking than it is necessarily coming from the legislature. But still, pause. Let those go into place. See what the effect is before you kill the whole industry and continue down that pathway. Yes, our, our critical issue right now is a lack of facilities and the affordability of that. Um, and as you know, you know, supply and demand, uh, as we see fewer and fewer facilities because we have places closing and people leaving the workforce, the cost is going to continue to increase and really constrict our uh, workforce, our labor market, even more so than it is now. Okay, thank you, Amy. Thank you. Next, we're gonna have Mike come up. Um, Mike is... Uh, Got a very small issue this session to be working on, not only on um, uh, land use, but also on transportation. And so Mike is gonna be uh, center in on how do we take care of 976? How do we take care of future transportation uh, cost and also? Mike. Thank you, Gary, and good morning, everyone. Welcome to the first day of session. Uh, it's very exciting to be here. Um, we're- Wait, wait, is it really Mike? <laughs> It is. It's like the first day of school. Yeah. <laughs> We're hitting the ground running this week. 
um, on transportation bills uh, and land use bills. And, and the two that I want to focus on this morning are related to transportation. Gary mentioned um, them earlier. One is uh, the, the supplemental transportation budget. This is a short session year. We did the, the larger transportation budget last session, about $9.8 billion. With the passage of 976, we're going to have to do a supplemental transportation budget and fund a $500 million hole. Uh, the other issue I'm going to talk about is low carbon fuel standard. Um, the Transportation Committee here at AWB got together and met last week and we came up with a set of position statements to respond to the Supplemental Transportation Budget uh, in light of 976 passing. Uh, the first issue that we're going to focus on is we want to fully fund the Maintenance and Preservation Account. Uh, that fund um, um, is used to uh, fill potholes, it's used to repair bridges, uh, and general maintenance on our road system across the state. It is significantly underfunding or underfunded uh, to maintain uh, the, uh, the road system adequately. So we're already underfunding uh, what we need from that account. We don't want to rob monies from that account. Um, we want to find the monies elsewhere. The other issue that we want to focus on for the, the response to 976 is we want to fully fund projects of regional and statewide significance. Uh, those are the most important. We realize that there are going to need to be cuts, like I said, about $500 million worth of cuts, uh, but we want to be sure that we fund the most important projects first. Thirdly, we want to encourage lawmakers to adopt transportation budget quickly. The governor paused all transportation projects in Washington. And that gets to our next point, which is we want to encourage the governor to unpause projects that are not directly or indirectly impacted by 976. Um, there is a group of funds that OFM has identified uh, that, that's going to take a hit from the, the passage of the initiative, but there are many funds that are not. So if a project is not going to be impacted by 976, we don't see the, uh, the benefit of, uh, of, of pausing it. We want those projects to move forward. And finally, we want to credit projects that lever leverage funds from other partners. Uh, there are many projects across the state that have uh, local dollars, uh, federal dollars, and they, they sometimes treat those as a match. We want to leverage those funds and not lose them. So we want to prioritize those projects also. The other topic I want to get into is low carbon fuel standard. Uh, we saw a bill last year that did pass the House. Um, I expect um, that the House is going to take up this issue again. In fact, the Senate already has a hearing on their bill later this week. Something that's new that's happened over the summer is we have a analysis from the Puget Sound Clean Air Agency on a low carbon fuel standard. They did a cost benefit look at what the impacts of a low carbon fuel standard would be and some of the findings in that report are very interesting. The Puget Sound Clean Air Agency estimates that an LCFS would raise fuel prices by 57 cents per gallon and diesel prices by 63 cents per gallon if a low carbon fuel standard was implemented. That's a significant increase in fuel prices. None of that money goes to transportation infrastructure. It's just a higher cost of purchasing fuel in Washington. So Mike, let me stop you there. Yeah. Because I think those are dramatic numbers that are gonna raise the price of fuel, not a gas tax that would be used for roads or something other. This is raising the price of fuel of which then is gonna make it very difficult. How do we go back and fund our road construction in the future? Yeah, it's a good point. The business community has generally supported statewide transportation packages in the past. Uh, we supported the last three that have been proposed. And we support them because there's a return on our, on our investment. We're buying something in exchange for the higher taxes. In the case of a transportation package, it's road infrastructure. Um, that's a, there's a direct correlation with road infrastructure, mobility, transportation projects, and uh, uh, the economic uh, or the economy of our state. We see that connection. With a low carbon fuel standard, it doesn't increase revenue to pay for transportation projects. It simply just raises the price of fuel. And not only does the fuel tax raise money for infrastructure, but it also raises money for transit 
uh, encouragement uh, for other people to use alternatives. So we're trying it through the transportation package that you worked on. How do we help reduce carbon emissions because transportation is a large one? And we did that through transit, more transit money, encouragement of alternative vehicles and stuff. This here again is raising just the price, not hitting any of those alternatives to try to lower. Right, we want to reduce emissions in the transportation sector. Uh, there's no doubt about that. The low carbon fuel standard we found um, from the Puget Sound Clean Air Agency's analysis and what's ex what California is experiencing with theirs, the LCFS won't reduce emissions effectively. In California, it's only about 1%. Puget Sound Clean Air Agency also estimates that it would reduce the gross regional product across the state by a billion and a half dollars by 2030. So they're going to, this, the LCFS proposal would raise fuel prices up to 57 cents per gallon, reduce the gross regional product by a billion and a half dollars across the state, and reduce emissions in the transportation sector only by one, about 1%. One we don't, I don't, believe that's an effective use of, of policy. There are better ways to reduce emissions in the transportation sector. We should be looking at those rather than doing these ineffective policies like a low carbon fuel standard. So those are two topics that will keep me busy this session. Like I said, we, we're hitting the ground running. Uh, the, the transportation budget is being heard in the House today. Uh, it's being heard in the Senate tomorrow. And the Senate is also hearing the LCFS bill on Thursday. So a very busy week. And if I, if I may, I want to put in a plug for my Friday calls. If you're interested in land use or transportation policies, I do calls every Friday. Uh, the Transportation Committee is at 9 and the Land Use Committee is at 10. Uh, these calls go about 30 minutes and uh, we go through the bills that are scheduled for a hearing the following week. So we talk about uh, whether these uh, bills are important to us, whether we want to weigh in on them, and what our position is going to be, and coordinate uh, testimony as well. If you're interested in those in those calls, um, please feel free to reach out. We'll get you on those committees, and you can participate in them. We find them very valuable for both myself and the group that's on the call because we have to go through these bills anyway. Doing them collectively uh, with the rest of the business community helps both both sides uh, try to try to get a handle on the following week. Very, very good, very valuable uh, during session. So I encourage you to participate in those. So Mike, I'm still stuck back on the low carbon fuel standards, yeah. the amount of money that <laughs> it would raise the price of fuel. And I want to go back because it's interesting to me that when you talk to a number of legislators, they want to do this to copy what California's done. So California's had this in place for around 10 years. They're in year 10. And then who did you get the study from? Is it an outside group down in California that has looked and said, well, we've done this for 10 years. Here's the least amount that we're reducing in carbon. And didn't they also said, there's gotta be a better way. This one's not working. Great question, Gary. And it's a point that I wanted to get to and I forgot. So I'm glad you brought it up. Uh, in California, the Legislative Analyst Office, it, it's a state agency, we call it the LAO, um, did an analysis on California's uh, climate policies regarding transportation. So they looked at their entire program that they have of reducing emissions in the transportation sector. Um, they found that the LCFS is the most inefficient program they have in all of their programs to reduce emissions. Um, it's, it's high cost and low benefit um, had led the agency to recommend that the legislature should amend it or eliminate it altogether. So they don't believe that the cost justify the small benefit. Like I said, 50, 50 cents increase in gas prices, reducing GRP in exchange for 1% reduction in the greenhouse gas emissions. There are much better ways to do it, much more effective ways to do it. We, would, we want to look at those rather than do an LCFS. It still causes me pause when a California <laughs> has done it for 10 years. It's not reducing carbon emissions in the transportation sector. All it's done is raise the price of fuel and not reduce carbon emissions out of the transportation. Right, and that's-, that's And we wanna follow that. Yeah. Some, some legislators do. And these are state agencies that are saying this. This, the, the, this isn't the industry. These are the agencies themselves who are saying this program is inefficient. Puget Sound Clean Air Agency validates everything that's happening in California. 
uh, we, we, this, is, this is not a path that we want to go down, we feel, as a business community because of the high cost and, and low return on that investment. We, we want to do something more effective. So if you're interested in this, make sure you get a hold of Mike because one of the things through these calls that we really encourage everybody that's listening, if these programs that we've been talking about affect you, then help us get involved. It's way better for Mike to go up to testify if he's got four or five members sitting next to him to talk about the impact it's going to have on them. So thank you, Mike. Good luck. Yeah, thank uh, you. Luke, copying something for California for 10 years has not worked, but we want to do it anyway. Thanks. Sounds great. <laughs> so next up is Peter. Uh, Peter uh, is running our environmental uh, issues. Um, I'm sure there's not too many of them that are going to be happening uh, this session um, uh, around the energy, carbon, carbon taxing, carbon pricing, carbon, whatever. Uh, so, Peter? Well, thank you, Gary. Um, as Gary said, I'm Peter Godlewski with the uh, Environment, Energy, and Water Portfolio here at AWB. Um, it, there, um, the energy issues that we are just talking about likely will be a quieter year this year. Uh, we just had a big year last session with the um, Clean Energy Transformation Act and then the rest of the governor's energy proposals. We just heard from uh, Mike that LCFS is likely to be, be a big issue. Last year, that was the fifth of the four, uh, sorry, excuse me, that was um, four of the energy, uh, governor's energy package passed last session. LCFS was the one that did not pass. So that's, that's as uh, Mike was saying, is going to be back. We have heard that there could be a cap-and-trade draft drop, uh, cap-and-trade bill draft uh, drop this session. Uh, a few bills on natural gas, uh, probably in response to the Bellingham and Seattle issues that we've been uh, hearing about. The Governor Snake River Dam's proposal uh, or report did also drop, and uh, we could see some bills in response to that. We do have one big energy bill so far um, that has actually been dropped, and this is the updating the state's greenhouse gas emission reduction standards. Um, according to the latest climate uh, data, these uh, new standards would um, suggest a different and a, more, a steeper drop in carbon emissions from this across the state. Uh, which the uh, first deadline would be 45% of 1990 emissions by 2030. Um, for comparison, our state's transportation sector is 44% of emissions within the state. So that is the equivalent of taking every single car and truck off the roads in the next 10 years. So these are extremely steep drops uh, in the uh, plan to get the state down to a close to net zero uh, um, carbon emissions by 2050. Uh, environmentally, it's going to be a very big year. We've already got a couple bills on PFAS uh, issues. These are the um, couple issues that came back last year. PFAS. 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 Explain what PFAS, PFAS is. is a chemical that is um, used in a lot of different uh, consumer and industrial applications. Uh, it's, it's got great uh, fire retardant uh, uh, elements, so it's common in a lot of electrical components. Um, power uh, block supplies for computers and TVs, TV casings. It's used wherever there could be a chance of either heat or, or fire uh, causing something to uh, um, reduce the chance of it catching on fire. It's also a very effective firefighting foam. Um, uh, it's used in airports, refineries, and chemical plants when the fires are too hot to be used, extinguished with water. Those, actually, those fires will actually split the atoms and turn it to oxygen and hydrogen. So pouring water on these fires actually causes them to go up hotter. So it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's an effective uh, firefighting foam as well. We've got a bill that would ban the use of that firefighting foam, and then also one that does address water contamination. The flip side of the, uh, the effectiveness of PFAS chemicals, and there's a whole, whole bunch of them, is that it, they're very uh, long-lasted. So they do last, last a long time in the environment. Um, plastic, pa plastic packaging continues to be another issue. We have a couple of bills on plastic packaging. Uh, AWB did support a study group being formed to investigate the use of plastic packaging in the state. That first meeting is actually happening after session. We will be saying that we think we should uh, let this, this study group go forward and come up with some recommendations before we move forward on other plastics bills. But we do currently have one single-use plastic food packaging ban bill and then also a bill that would ban ex expanded polystyrene in the state as well. So the legislature passed legislations and put this group together to look at all of these issues and report back next year. But now we automatically want to jump out there before the group even has met to start looking at uh, recycling or how do we reuse some of this stuff, looking at those channels. We want to jump in with legislation, preempt that group, and ban certain. Ban them outright, yep. 
Um, there's also a couple of different extended producer responsibility programs that would apply on batteries, medical sharps, and then P, uh, fo uh, solar cells as well too. So we'll, once those drop, we'll be planning on engaging on those. Um, finally, there's an anti-fouling paint um, uh, follow-up bill from, a, from an issue a couple years ago where the uh, copper uh, was banned as an element in anti-fouling paints for boats. Uh, pending the alternative uh, analysis, they found that the alternative chemical was more toxic than the chemical that they banned in the first place. Now we're running back to a bill to reuse, to allow the use of copper again in the, in the anti-fouling paint. Um, this, is, this is sort of a long issue where we have a advocacy group that pushes a, a ban on a chemical without actually looking at the full uh, sort of spectrum of its impacts. And um, we are hoping that this is an opportunity to help illustrate why it's good to slow down, think about these, do the proper science, thoroughly vet these, these alternatives and these chemicals to make sure we're well aware of the full impact of what's going on. Uh, finally, um, on the water side, there was an article in the Seattle Times that our members may remember from earlier this summer that dealt with water rights transfers by a Wall Street investment firm called Crown West. This spooked a lot of folks out here talking about the ability of transferring water rights outside of water uh, districts. So there may, may be a couple of bills that seek to address sort of um, water rights within the sort of water rights transfer uh, discussion. And finally, Senator Honeyford also has a drought relief mitigation bill um, out that would seek to try to find some ways to uh, mitigate the, relief, the, the impact of droughts on uh, water districts, certainly in the wetter and the drier parts of the state. Uh, should be hopefully a fairly quiet year on the waterfront the, with the big year being um, environment. So, Peter, let's go back up where we first, uh, where you first started, and let's talk a little bit about natural gas. Uh, we are part of a natural gas uh, coalition to talk about uh, the good effects of natural gas. Why do we need it not only in our electrical grid, but a lot of industries rely on natural gas. But we're starting to see a push, certainly, I believe you said in Bellingham, and in Seattle to outright ban uh, natural gas. You want to talk a little bit about that and the importance of how important natural gas is uh, to our state. Absolutely. Well, the Bellingham and Seattle uh, sort of bans were, were two different uh, approaches to, that we um, that sort of occupy the main main area within this uh, discussion about natural gas. The Bellingham ban would have outright stopped any use of natural gas and then required property owners to go in and retrofit their buildings and businesses to remove that infrastructure at certain timelines. The Seattle ban was a ban on new hookups. So you were able to keep your existing natural gas infrastructure, but you can't expand it anymore. Um, we had a bill last session, uh, 1257, on the energy efficiency for buildings that, that sought to increase some of the costs for expanding natural gas use that uh, sort of is a third way as well, too. But certainly the idea is either to ban it outright or to try to prevent new hookups from coming on. Unfortunately, uh, natural gas is important for uh, a variety of commercial and industrial uses, including also residential home cooking and then also restaurant home cooking. There's just no... Uh, um, broadly available and affordable uh, alternative right now. On the industrial side, you need natural gas to enable to um, uh, perform certain uh, uh, industrial processes, particularly metal refining or smelting. Uh, there's a, a national news that some of the national bottlers are moving away from plastic bottles and um, are moving away from glass bottles. They'll be using aluminum bottles now, which is increasing the use of aluminum. You can't refine aluminum without the use of, excuse me, you can't recycle aluminum without the use of natural gas to melt that the, the melt that aluminum down and, and, and reuse it. So we're in a position where, where industry is trying to, to, to adjust to what's seen as more eco-friendly or more um, uh, or less more recyclable product. On the other side, we're pre preventing the industry from adapting and meeting that market need. So uh, sort of at longer heads on how that's going to be addressed. And I think if I remember right from uh, a number of years back, industry, especially around the food processing side, it's a lot more efficient for natural gas heaters and burners and stuff than it is for electrical side. So there was a few years back that the PUDs actually assisted manufacturers to convert over to natural gas to save electricity, but also the natural gas was more cost effective, but it was also better for the environment and, and all. You know, natural, oh, we have a huge food processing in the center part of the state. It's one of the, uh, um, the largest contributors to the state GD GRP. Uh, they rely heavily on the use of natural gas in order for their heating and cooling. And they, they are very efficient, very high tech, um, factories and facilities, but they still do require the use of the, the heat capacity of natural gas. 
Okay, thank you, Peter. So if you're interested in the natural gas, don't go away, Peter, I got another question for you. If you're interested in the natural gas and especially the coalition we're part of, please uh, either give myself or Peter a call uh, to get involved with us on uh, natural gas. I wanna go to the Snake River dams a little bit. Uh, that hits a little bit more back home with me. Uh, the talk about removing the Snake River dams has gone on for a long period of time. It's a federal issue, it's not a state issue. It has to be decided by the feds, not by the state, but the governor uh, went out with an executive order, I believe it was, and said, we're gonna do a study, our own study, while the feds are studying it, we're gonna do a study on uh, removing the Snake River dams. And I think reports are out now and how costly that would be, what it would do to transportation, what it would do for removing a product for agriculture. Can you talk a little bit? I know I'm asking you just off the top, but of course. you can talk a little bit about uh, some of those. So studies. the federal CR, uh, environmental impact study on the Snake River dams is due out in the middle of February. So it actually will come out during session. And this is the, the one that was ordered by ju the judge as part of the federal biop lawsuit uh, and is sort of the, the updated version of the air environmental impact of, of the uh, four lower Snake River dams. Um, the concerns sort of surrounding the, the Snake River dams is that they provide a lot, they help integrate the renewable resources that we have out in central and western Washington, or eastern Washington. These, these uh, the windmills and, and, and solar farms won't work without some sort of backup on, on, um, on the grid side. And then and the Snake River dams perform that role. A lot of the advocates are talking about we can buy the power cheaper. It's, it's the, they cost too much for the power they produce. Unfortunately, it's not just about the, the cost of that power. It's the role they provide. And they're the, the backbone that integrates those renewables. When they're not producing, they can cycle up very quickly. Without the natural gas dams, it's, or excuse me, without the Snake River dams, it's not just a matter of replacing that energy. You also need to replace it with something that's equally reliable in order to ramp up and down and within the varying uh, inputs from the uh, renewable grid. So you're looking at either natural gas or a coal-fired plant or nuclear. Those are the, the, the only available options without those dams. Um, and the Clean Energy Transformation Act that passed last year sort of makes all uh, um, the, the natural gas and coal very difficult. Within the nuclear option, there hasn't been a new nuclear plant built or, or even permitted within the state. And there is no, no plans to permit one right now anyway. So the, the, the hydro remains really the only backbone for, for uh, a base load that, that helps integrate these renewable resources into the grid. So removing those, the, those dams has now become more than just removing the, the, the clean energy that they provide, the transportation, the irrigation benefits. It's now sort of how does this help meet the state's whole state's energy need and energy grid. So, you know, If I'm not mistaken, I think that uh, it's been said that in our state in the months of January, February, and July, uh, the wind doesn't blow a lot here. And so our, our wind that everybody says we want to use as a renewable, okay with that, realizing though that we've got at least three months that the wind doesn't blow. You've got to have that backup and that's where the hydro is one to be able to uh, step in and ramp up when the wind's not blowing, when the wind's blowing, then they can save that energy at the dams for a later use down the road. I think just here two or three weeks ago, uh, I think there was a period of time for about eight days that wind didn't blow. And luckily we had uh, hydro that could step in and pick that slack up. So it's really a balancing that those uh, Snake River, Columbia River, all the dams provide here. And it's one of the reasons because of our hydro system, along with wind and solar, that we are one of the cleanest stakes for uh, renewable energy in the state. Well, it, not just with uh, renewable energy, but if you look at sort of the, the grid within Washington, Oregon, Idaho, the sort of the BPA system, thanks to the dams and the BPA system, power produced within the within the, the, the Puget Sound region is, or excuse me, the Pacific Northwest is the some of the cleanest in the country. Any products, any products produced with uh, power produced within Washington state is going to have the lowest carbon intensity within that pro that product too. So you're not only, you know, having effective and clean energy, you're, ha you're, you're producing products that are greener than those that might be produced with coal power or um, natural gas or um, produced outside in, within China that might have a higher carbon value within that product. And I think to show the importance of nuclear in our state, I believe uh, Energy Northwest made the comment that last January that BPA called them up and said, don't slow down, keep producing as much as you can because we're very cold, so there wasn't a lot of melt-off. 
and so we weren't getting a lot of runoff coming down the, the, the dam system. And so they were really relying on the nuclear power to carry that load. So it is very important in our state that we have the balance between the hydro, nuclear, wind, and uh, solar coming on gives us a very, very reliable, we are not used to California to where you have blackouts. We haven't experienced those yet. I think every one of us in this state wanna walk home and flip that switch and our power comes on. And most generally with all of us using iPads and iPhones and computers and stuff uh, to tell the kids, sorry, tonight we're gonna have a blackout for a period of time. I don't think we'll go over very well. So. All, we are all, all options on the table as far as the energy portfolio in the state goes. And as we're looking to electrify more and more elements of our economy, the increase on that electrical grid, the, the importance of the reliability of that electrical grid only becomes more and more important. Uh, grid reliability and uh, reliable power is a going to be a key issue for the business community moving forward. And remembering, even though our state is very green in power, that doesn't mean that we're not saying let's continue to work on innovation technology to continue to reduce our carbon emissions out of the state and transportation being one of the largest ones or the largest one. We say let's continue that, but let's make sure we're doing it in a sensible way to where we maintain a reliable grid, uh, inexpensive uh, electrical system to where we can maintain the economy for the state. Yes. Okay. All right. So that concludes and not anybody ask a question so my staff either did an excellent excellent job or all of you were asleep or nobody showed up on here because you got snowbound i hope that's not the reason but uh thank you very much for being on today i think that you heard a common theme through a lot of my staff in that it's going to be in 2021 and so a lot of the issues will be talked about, but will come back up in January of 2021. All the more reason, as we look to 2021, what happens in the elections in 2020 will depend, depend on what happens in January of 2021. And so will we look for more taxes? Will we look for more taxes on transportation? All of those things are being pushed now to 2021. So please work with us, keep in touch. If these issues strike you, uh, make sure you get a hold of us so that we can help you with white papers or uh, any of that. If you are willing to come testify on these issues, if these issues hit your business, then let us know so we can work with you to come down and testify along with my staff on these issues as we go into this short 60-day uh, session. So with that, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the AWB podcast. Be sure to click subscribe to stay up to date on all of our audio content. We'll talk to you next time.